Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before we get started, a couple of announcements. First, Carbon Removal Canada's official launch event will be happening next week in Ottawa on November 8th. We're excited about the confirmed attendees and speakers, and I think it'll be a great event to set the stage for scaling up CDR in Canada. I'll include a link to register for the event in the show notes. We'll be using the event to publicize our first report that makes the case, both climate and economic, for scaling CDR in Canada. And we'll be recommending policy actions to realize this sizable opportunity. I'll be sure to share that report as soon as it's live. Second, I'm excited to welcome Tink Chen to the Carbon Curve podcast. When I was looking for someone to help me with this podcast, I was immediately struck by his passion for CDR and impressed with all the work he's done in shaping the CDR narrative and advancing the broader ecosystem. I'm grateful for his support leading the production of the show from strategizing with me on guests and topics to editing and publishing episodes themselves. You'll be hearing a lot more from him going forward. Now on to what we're here to talk about today. I love getting deep on the application of carbon removal technologies in the context of solving thorny decarbonization challenges. One such challenge is decarbonizing aviation. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to work with the Clean Air Task Force on what it will take to decarbonize the aviation sector and realize just how complex it's going to be and how many factors are at play to get this sector to net zero. My guest today knows leaps and bounds more than I do about this and shares how CDR, and direct air capture in particular, can be a valuable tool among many in decarbonizing aviation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Anna Stukas. Anna is a vice president of business development at Carbon Engineering. And Anna is a professional engineer with nearly two decades of experience bridging the gap between technology and business to overcome barriers to clean tech commercialization. She currently leads a variety of Carbon Engineering's partnering and business development efforts with a focus on the aviation ecosystem. Anna previously worked with Angstrom Power and BIC, developing hydrogen and fuel cell technologies, where her responsibilities spanned IP and licensing strategy, product safety, and international regulatory development, including at the United Nations and International Civil Aviation Organization. Anna currently serves on the board of directors of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and of Science World. Anna's work has been recognized by the Minerva Foundation's Women in Energy Award for Philanthropy and Business in Vancouver's 40 Under 40 Award. Carbon Engineering is a climate solutions company. They are focused on the global deployment of large-scale direct air capture technology that captures carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, enabling two complementary solutions to reach net zero, permanent carbon dioxide removal and sustainable aviation fuel. With its partners, Carbon Engineering is working to deploy large-scale commercial DAC facilities. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Naeem. I'm really glad you could be here. And I know I've covered some of this at the top, but do you want to maybe tell me a little bit about your journey and experience kind of getting into the carbon removal world? Absolutely. I'm a, a mechanical engineer by training, and I was somebody who ended up in engineering because I couldn't really decide between physics and chemistry and English lit and law. And engineering seemed like a good way to be able to do a little bit of, of all of those things. But most importantly, I went into engineering because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do something that could help to change the world. So the first 
sort of dozen years of my career, I worked in hydrogen and fuel cells, clean technology. And when BIC, who had bought the fuel cell technology that we'd worked on and developed at Angstrom, when they decided to sell that technology again, I spent some time looking at, at what I wanted to do with my life. And ultimately, for me, it was really important to come back to my roots and to go back to the clean tech space. And there, I was really lucky. There were a bunch of very exciting clean tech startups in the Vancouver area, one of which was carbon engineering. And I'd say within the first few days of, of working there, I was absolutely hooked and completely devoted to the idea that, you know, not only do we need to reduce our emissions as much as humanly possible, we also need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere if we're going to get to net zero. And roughly what time frame was this? How long have you been with carbon engineering? Time flies when you're having fun. It's hard for me to believe I actually joined carbon engineering back in 2015. So we're, we're coming up on eight and a half years now. Wow, that's amazing. As, as someone who used to call Vancouver home myself, I can't imagine just hitting the jackpot to work in carbon removal with a company like Carbon Engineering and to live in Vancouver. It just seems like the best package. So that sounds really great. Tell me a little bit more about some of the primary focus areas of carbon engineering at the moment. So carbon engineering's core expertise is the ability to capture carbon directly out of the atmosphere. From there, we can either put it back underground where it came from, or we can do things like combine it with clean hydrogen and make low carbon products like sustainable aviation fuel. So our expertise at our core is as a technology developer, our number one focus is improving our technology, getting it ready for deployment at scale and driving down the cost of our technology. We then work with our partners like 1.5, to deploy our technology at climate relevant scales around the world. And so today, together with our partners at 1.5, the first commercial project to deploy carbon engineering's technology called Stratos is currently under construction in the Permian Basin in Texas. We're also working on front-end engineering for a second commercial project targeted to be a million tons per year of capture capacity for deployment in the south of Texas. And there were just last week some recent announcements about beginning some feasibility studies elsewhere in the world as well. So our, our real primary focus is enabling the deployment of our direct air capture technology at climate relevant scale around the world. That is really cool. And I think when we had an opportunity to kind of talk about, you know, carbon engineering's work in the past and I touched on it a little bit in our introduction. It sounds like carbon engineering is thinking about the deployment of large-scale direct air capture for two main kind of solutions. One is the permanent carbon dioxide removal solution, and the other is sustainable aviation fuel. Can you tell me a little bit about the aviation sector more broadly? I think looking back to your biography, you spent some time in that space, and I'd love to learn more about the aviation emissions problem itself and the progress that needs to be made to help decarbonize this really important sector. Aviation is a, a really interesting sector. 
it's hard to imagine something that is more integral to the way that we lead our lives today that also has so many challenges when it comes to reaching net zero. Aviation is sort of the quintessential hard to abate sector. When we think about our path to net zero as a society, there are the things that we can do to reduce emissions that save us money. All the stuff that your mom used to tell you to do, turn off the lights, put on a sweater, ride your bike instead of getting a ride. There's the things that we can do for not a lot of cost, like implementing renewables and, you know, working on reducing emissions from industry. And then when we get over to the right-hand side of the abatement curve, costs go up really quickly and the number of solutions that we have available to us decrease. And aviation is a sector where there are very few alternatives to the energy density that's provided to us by liquid hydrocarbons. When you look at things like the International Air Transport Association's net zero roadmaps, they really clearly lay out how aviation needs to use every single tool in its toolbox to reach net zero, starting with things like better efficiency, more efficient flight operations, newer aircraft that are more flight fuel efficient. There's a huge piece of that that is a sustainable aviation fuel piece that allows us to start looking at decarbonizing the actual operations of aviation. And then there's a big chunk that's left over at the end, those residual emissions that even after we've done everything we possibly can, there are still somewhere in the range of hundreds of millions of tons of emissions that need to be counterbalanced. And if we look at things like the Oxford Principles for Net Zero Aligned Offsetting, it's really critical that those residual emissions are counterbalanced using durable carbon removal. That concept of that one remaining emission is counterbalanced by that negative one permanent carbon removal or durable carbon removal. It's a, a huge piece of that challenge and a way that DAC can be a really powerful tool for helping aviation to reach net zero. Making sure I kind of understand this correctly, decarbonizing aviation, the job isn't done after we've made the operations more efficient and made aircraft more efficient and we've used sustainable aviation fuel, um, which I don't always love the term sustainable aviation fuel because it can mean so many things and we can use, it is kind of the terminology that we're using mm -hmm. right now. And I did have a chance to do a actually a white paper with a clean air task force on the aviation sector and how we can decarbonize this. And you can see there's a, an entire spectrum of things that could count as sustainable aviation fuel, but don't actually do a very good job of decarbonizing um, aviation fuel. And we can get into that at, at, at some other point. But more importantly, it sounds like even after we've taken all of these other steps to decarbonize aviation, we also still have this kind of residual emissions problem, like I imagine we would with any industry that goes through uh, a major decarbonization process. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, it's really easy for us to talk about zero emission vehicles, but the reality is basically nothing is perfectly net zero. Basically nothing is zero emission. There are always residual emissions that are left over at the end of the day. Even if we transition to 100% sustainable aviation fuel tomorrow, sustainable aviation fuel is not net zero. There are still residual emissions. And as you've alluded to, 
the magnitude of those residual emissions are going to vary depending on things like what feedstock you use, how you've processed that feedstock. And to your point on sustainability, one of the biggest challenges with sustainable aviation fuel and the biggest uncertainties in terms of how how fast and how largely we can scale our production is that a lot of the feedstocks that we have available to us for sustainable aviation fuel are limited in scope before we end up with questions about food versus fuel. Uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide is interestingly a highly scalable input to sustainable aviation fuel. It also requires clean hydrogen in order to bring that CO2 and the hydrogen together. And for that to be successful, we also need to see the deployment of a lot more renewable electricity. And even once we've done all of that, there will still be residual emissions, even when we're recycling the CO2 from the air. And that's where carbon removal comes in. That's, I think that's important for people to kind of really wrap their heads around, is that it's not just about swapping in sustainable aviation fuel in place of you know conventional jet fuel, and now we've decarbonized aviation. There's a lot of work to do. This is a really, really tricky sector to figure out how to get to net zero. And there's also the challenge of replacing planes to be more efficient. That's very capital intensive and takes a long time to do. There are other kind of energy carriers that we could be thinking about, but it seems like some of them are going to be more scalable than others, and it's all very, very early stage. So it seems like you're tackling a really, really tricky problem. Um, and you've kind of covered some of the primary strategies for decarbonizing aviation. Can you tell me the totality of the role that something like direct air capture can play in this effort? Direct air capture is really interesting because not only can we use direct air capture paired with durable storage, whether that's geologic sequestration or mineralization, for durable carbon removal, the, the piece that we need to counterbalance all those residual emissions, it's also the only type of removal that we can invest in today that helps us to grow our feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel for tomorrow. And if you look at the projections that have been done by experts ranging from the International Air Transport Association to the Mission Possible Partnership in their Making Net Zero Aviation Possible report, the estimates for how much direct air capture we're going to need by 2050 range from hundreds of millions of tons to north of a gigaton. And I think one of the other critical pieces that we're starting to see leading airlines like ANA, All Nippon Airways, and now EasyJet recognize is that we can't wait until 2049 to start investing in removals and expect to have billions of tons of removals available to us. That investment needs to start today if we're going to be able to scale the infrastructure to the level that we need available to us in 2050. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why the work that's being done now um, across, frankly, all carbon removal methods is so important because we have to test these technologies at scale, de-risk these technologies, figure out what works, what doesn't. How do we get the community engagement piece right? How do we figure out the supply chain challenges that are going to exist? Like there's so many questions and so many potential challenges and roadblocks along the way to getting 
technology like direct air capture to any kind of climate relevant scale, that the need to start now is really important. And I think that's sometimes lost that this is not something that we can just you know switch on in 2049, like you said. We have to start building it now. So can you tell us more about the role that DAC will have to play in achieving aviation decarbonization? If I'm getting you correctly, it seems like there's a role for direct air capture to play in terms of the residual emissions of aviation, but also as a potential energy carrier or sustainable aviation fuel input as well. Can you say more about that? If we look at the way that, that DAC can help aviation, think about it as what DAC lets you do is it lets you decouple your point of emission from your point of collection. So instead of imagining up the ridiculous scenario of trying to capture the CO2 that's coming out the exhaust pipe of your airplane, which, by the way, the physics are terrible for because carbon dioxide is actually heavier than the jet fuel that's burning, so your airplane would get heavier as you went along and less aerodynamically efficient, it lets you do that collection in a centralized location where it makes sense where you have the right rocks to put the carbon underground and where you have plentiful renewable electricity that can be deployed so that you can power your director capture facility in a sustainable way. Because at the end of the day, it's not carbon removal unless from a cradle to grave perspective, you've actually taken a net ton of carbon out of the air. And that piece is really, really important. So when we think about how big of a role that DAC could play. You know, things like the IATA Net Zero Roadmaps forecast, we may need 500 million tons of carbon removals in 2050. We may need that much and then some as using that atmospheric carbon as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel. I think one of the clearest roadmaps that I've seen in terms of both the role of DAC and how it can evolve over time is if you look at all Nippon Airways midterm targets and their net zero plan, basically, they've said, well, in 2050, if we do all of the above, if we implement all of the tools in our toolbox, all of our efficiency improvements, all of our new aircraft and our sustainable aviation fuel, they're forecasting that they need about 10% carbon removal in 2050 to counterbalance their residual emissions. They then work backwards and they said, well, if we need 10% carbon removal in 2050, then we probably need about 1% carbon removal in 2030 in order to get us started on building out the infrastructure. And I think that leadership and that clarity of thought is just incredible from an airline to say, you know, we recognize that this is a supply chain that we need to build and that we need to invest in today. That's really important. I think, you know, we've had some guidance out to corporates, whether that was the Science-Based Targets Initiative or others, that maybe haven't always provided a ton of clarity on, like, how do you actually build up the supply chain if you are going to need some amount of residuals? And listen, you know, what What seems like it's going to be too expensive to decarbonize today, that might not be the case tomorrow or in 2050. But preparing for some degree of residual emissions in the aviation sector seems like a smart thing to do. And building up to that, not just kind of hoping that it's going to be there in 2050, is really important. But how do you get an airline, and we was going to actually ask you about some of these 
you know, recent agreements with airlines like ANA, how do you get them to think forward in that way or think ahead in that way? Because, you know, they could always say, well, why don't we just let some other airline build this supply chain? Why should we do it? And what was the argument to ANA to say, listen, direct air capture is going to play a role of 10% of overall decarbonization of your aviation operations. You need to do 1% by 2030. How do you get one airline to say yes to that when you know that it has to happen across the industry? You know, Naeem, I find it really interesting that you brought up the science-based targets initiative in, in the discussion about removals versus reductions. We hear a lot from customers that they don't want to invest in removals today because the way that they interpret the guidance from SBTI yeah. is that you have to do all of your emissions reductions first. And we've actually heard in some discussions with SBTI that they're surprised to hear that because their guidance actually says, we encourage you to look at removals for counterbalancing your residual emissions. And in fact, that removals are the only solution that SBTI thinks are appropriate for addressing residual emissions. And the piece I think that's missing is that guidance that emissions reductions are critically important and they should absolutely be everyone's number one focus. But we don't have magic wands. We can't just snap our fingers in the day before we hit net zero and expect all of those removals to magically appear. I think with airlines, and I've heard ANA say this publicly in particular, airlines are currently living through the challenge of trying to get their hands on sustainable aviation fuel. I was at the International Air Transport Association's World Sustainability Symposium last week and heard time and time again from the CEO panel that included CEOs from Air France to Cathay to Latam through to industry experts all saying, we're buying every single drop of sap we possibly can, and there isn't enough for us to make our targets. And I think that reality that it takes time to scale any new technology and any new infrastructure is a big piece of why ANA decided that they needed to start investing in removals today. Part of what they've said is long-term, while you may be able to use offsets and emissions trading today, in a net zero society, only removals will continue to exist in a net zero steady state. And if we are going to have the removals that we need, then we need to start investing today. And some of the things that they've said about why they started with director capture to sequestration first is that they were highly motivated to diversify their de decarbonization measures specifically because they've seen challenges with procuring sustainable aviation fuel. They see public acceptance for DAC to sequestration as a new concept. They recognize that there's that level of integrity, of transparency. There are lower additionality risks with DAC. Either you've taken that town out of the air and put it back where it came from, or you haven't. 
So you don't have a lot of the complexity that you see in more conventional offsets. Um, they've also highlighted the benefits that you see with technology-based solutions of that scalability, the permanency, the transparency. And finally, that recognition that R&D and deployment takes time. We only have 27 years left until 2050. And that might sound like a long time until we start to think that people started working on and trying to deploy sustainable aviation fuel in the early 2000s. We've already been working on it for over 20 years. And today, leading airlines are hopeful that they might be able to hit 0.5% SAF this year. So we basically don't have a choice but to start investing now if we're going to hit the targets that we need to be at 2050. And the upside is, is that as we get sustainable aviation fuel scaled up in the way that it needs to be, there's still a purpose for the direct air capture capacity that we're building down the line, that there's, it's going to serve a valuable purpose no matter what happens with sustainable aviation fuels 10, 20 years from now. Exactly. And there, you know, it's almost like two sides of the same coin or, or they, they're, they're very complementary pairs. You know, growing out our infrastructure for capturing atmospheric carbon dioxide directly out of the air also helps to grow our feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel. And it makes that durable carbon removal infrastructure that we're going to need, as you said, not only to help aviation counterbalance their residual emissions, but to also help other hard to abate sectors and to tackle all of the rest of the residual emissions that we have. And ultimately to go back and clean up the 200 years of mess that we've already created up in the atmosphere. Absolutely. I actually see that latter point as, as the big picture for, for carbon removal, um, but maybe not as applicable as a use case for carbon removal today, but certainly something that's top of mind. It's interesting that you say that. I think in that net zero end state, direct air capture becomes like the air treatment equivalent of wastewater treatment. 200 years ago, it was the water that was killing us. Today, it's the carbon in the air that's causing climate change. We will have been truly successful at reaching net zero when DAC isn't this new, exciting, novel technology with a whole bunch of risk and a whole bunch of market potential but when it actually blends into the background as that boring air treatment infrastructure that everybody takes for granted that all governments do. But there's a hugely long way for us to go between here and there. That's so true. I think as soon as all of this becomes less sexy, we know we've succeeded, basically. That's exactly right. Um, so what else can you tell me about just the agreement with ANA and other airlines that have looked at direct air capture and made some pretty bold commitments behind it. Is there anything more that we need to know about that? The aviation sector's really taken a leadership role in leaning in and recognizing the importance of direct air capture in reaching net zero. Uh, just last year, we saw Airbus lean in with a pre-purchase of 400,000 tons of permanent carbon removal from our partners at 1.5. That remains one of the largest purchases of, of carbon removal in the world to date. 
just a few months later at the Farnborough Air Show, they then announced that they were bringing seven airlines and airline groups in to partner with them on carbon removal. And just yesterday, we actually saw them announce that EasyJet has become the first airline to reach a definitive agreement with Airbus on participating in Airbus's carbon capture solution that's provided by the carbon removal that our partners at 1.5 are developing using carbon engineering's technology. Together with that, we saw all Nippon Airways lean in this summer and become the first airline to purchase carbon removal from our partners at 1.5. They purchased 30,000 tons over three years, so 10,000 tons per year. And when we look at those purchases, those are some of the most significant purchases in the carbon removal space. They're instrumental not only for helping aviation start on that path to net zero and tackling their residual emissions, they're also critical to the scaling of the DAC industry as a whole. And thinking about, you know, the DAC industry as a whole, I'm, I'm curious about other carbon removal solutions and, and what role they can play. It's, it's almost weird to think about DAC in this way, but it's almost this like incumbent technology, if you will, in the carbon removal world. And I can see why there would be an interest in buying large volumes for direct air capture versus maybe something that is uh, a little, you know, a little more untested or an emerging carbon removal solution. But what, what role do you see other carbon removal solutions playing in helping to address aviation emissions? That's a, a great question, Naeem, because really carbon removal is going to take an entire ecosystem approach. DAC isn't a silver bullet. It isn't the be-all and end-all. It's not the only carbon removal solution. We need an entire portfolio of carbon removal solutions for us to reach net zero. Today, that portfolio approach is critical to help make the cost of removals more accessible. Technology-based removals through DAC are, are more expensive than some of the biologically-based solutions. In the end state, I think it's important to go back to the Oxford principles for net zero aligned offsetting that it's really important over time that we transition not only from avoidance and reductions to removals, but also that we trans transition from short-lived storage to long-lived storage. That doesn't mean that DACTA sequestration is the only method of a removal with long-lived storage. We need all of those solutions. And quite frankly, we probably need solutions that haven't been invented yet to complement everything else that we're already doing. The only thing that I can tell you with absolute certainty is that we don't know what we don't know. And that anybody who tells you that they know exactly how the world is going to get to net zero is probably wrong. <laughs> so I think that there's a big role for the, the entire spectrum of carbon removal solutions to help aviation to get to net zero. And then when we reach that net zero end state, there's still a role for those biologically based solutions to, to play, particularly with addressing the emissions that have shorter lived effects. Uh, Robert Hoagland did a fantastic post on this a few weeks ago about how when we look at the emission of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, that's an immediate and permanent release. And so it's important that we counterbalance the immediate and permanent release with an immediate and permanent removal. 
But there are all sorts of other emissions, everything from NOx to methane to the non-CO2 effects of things like uh, contrails that are the science of which is very nascent and only just starting to be understood. But those are all short-lived greenhouse gas effects. And so maybe there's a role for those short-lived storage solutions to help us in that vital role of dealing with the short-lived greenhouse gas effects. Um, we're very quickly getting beyond my my limits of scientific expertise, but I think that there's a really nice symmetry there to think about how, you know, there is going to be a pivotally important role for all types of carbon removal to play from now and through when we reach net zero. I really like the fact that we have a potential home for um some of the shorter duration methods of carbon removal and a role for them to play because uh, because I think that's what it was always about. It was not about long duration is better than short duration, but it was important that uh, if um, long-term emissions are going to compensate or be compensated by shorter duration carbon removal methods, that doesn't make sense. And so it's great to hear about Robert's work around that and helping us think about the kind of complementary efforts to address aviation emissions as long as we eventually move away from this place where you you know pay a few bucks when you buy a plane ticket to offset your travel in that way with with a forced offset or similar where i think that's just a transition that i think you talked about with the oxford offsetting principles that needs to happen a lot sooner in my view uh, just getting exactly. away from from that we can't and, hide and... Oops, sorry i was going to say we can't hide all the dead dinosaurs in the trees mhm that's a great way to put it yeah, absolutely. And so I hope I hope some airlines are listening to that in terms of just like thinking about what some of the leadership, the leadership that we've seen from ANA and EasyJet and others. And I mean, Airbus as a, a major player in aviation um, have done to think about carbon removal in a long duration context. I really hope that we see other airlines and, and other companies that are involved in the aviation sector more broadly follow suit. I think this is really important. Um, what do you think the future holds for direct air capture in the effort to decarbonize aviation long-term. And in your view, what does the future of DAC look like in terms of, you know, policies and industry commitments going forward? Today, it's it's really fantastic to see leading airlines like ANA and EasyJet and OEMs like Airbus leaning in and voluntarily taking action to purchase durable carbon removal today because they've recognized that they need it for their use in the future. But when we come to what's going to motivate the significant growth of direct air capture and decarbonization tools that are going to be necessary for aviation to reach net zero, recognizing that it is going to cost more than pennies per ticket, recognizing also, though, that it's not going to be, say, double the price of your ticket. It's going to be compliance markets that are going to drive the bulk of large-scale adoption. And I think that's true for any industry, aviation in particular. We're seeing the first framework of that start to come into place with the International Civil Aviation Organization's Corsia rules that start to come into effect early next year. Today, those rules give airlines a lot of flexibility in terms of how they meet their targets, 
uh, which today the target for the industry is carbon neutral growth from 85% of 2019 emissions. There's a gap between that and the aviation industry's long-term aspirational goal of reaching net zero by 2050. We are going to need to see compliance policies that come in and that take effect that motivate the purchase of durable carbon removal, as well as sustainable aviation fuel to see that scaling happen. I think some great examples of this are right at home here in British Columbia with BC's Low Carbon Fuels Act, I think is what it's now been renamed to. Similarly with California's Low Carbon Fuel Standard, where there's a few core elements that are really important that tie those together and why they're so effective. The first is that they're performance-based. They focus on the end result that they're looking for, which is to reduce the absolute number of carbon molecules in the atmosphere, and they've designed the policy around that. Both California and British Columbia have now added direct air capture to sequestration in as the only form of carbon removal that's seen as equivalent to reducing your emissions through low carbon fuel use. And California allows the aviation industry to opt in to earn credits. Starting from next year in British Columbia, we expect to see uh, the aviation industry actually regulated. Now it starts small. The, the target in the first year is actually 0%, but it starts to increase uh, the scale that's required. And I think that policies like that are going to be absolutely pivotal. And when we think about starting small, it isn't actually that expensive. It allows us to get our feet wet, to start meaningfully investing in carbon removal and low carbon fuels without generating sticker shock uh, when it comes to the customers. Right. And that starting small in a way that kind of grows over time is helpful because I think to your point around the sticker shock, I think people get really hung up on the, on, you know, on the price per ton and what these sorts of mechanisms do, whether it is built into a compliance program or if it's another policy around, let's say, carbon removal procurement, that we start small and it grows over time, that the absolute cost is a lot more manageable and it's kind of the focus of our work and it lets us make progress uh, without getting hung up on, well, here's how much it costs per ton, which is the point of what all the work that we're doing and I know you're all doing at Carbon Engineering is how do we bring that that price per ton down in a meaningful way and how can we do that with you know policies and compliance markets and other mechanisms that can just get us started at small scales and that grows over time that compounds over time and that's how we get to that future end state like you said of you know reducing the number of co2 molecules in the atmosphere as much as possible yeah and naeem you've hit on a great point there as well about the need for government procurement it's not just seeing leading companies start to play a role. And we're so lucky here in Canada to have leading companies like Shopify and BMO taking a leadership role and recognizing the role that removals have to play. It's also the government piece. And, you know, super exciting to see the USDOE putting out their call for removals procurement. And, and it can start small it's also really important to define that standard for what good looks like. 
it it's sort of that product acceptance piece that says this is really important this is a good thing to do and if you're going to do it here's how to do it right absolutely and and again another example the doe commitment of 35 million dollars is a big deal but you know in the grand scheme of things it's not a daca right it's a great starting point for carbon removal at at a scale that is manageable for constrained budgets right now but it still does the work of helping create that market and i think the point that you made is a good one you know here's an opportunity to set a really high standard for what good looks like and so that some of the more emerging carbon removal solutions that aren't as far along as dac have something to to shoot towards as well as we try to create this mature market. So we're talking a lot about how do we stimulate this demand, right? How do we create demand for direct air capture? How do we ensure that we're scaling up sufficient DAC capacity so that it's not a supply constraint going forward? I used to think of the things that we needed sort of like the three uh, legs of a stool that that critical, critical piece is you need some form of market demand. You need something like a compliance standard coupled with the early action of the voluntary markets to, to demonstrate that there's sufficient demand available for these large infrastructure projects. You then need some way of de-risking that demand, whether it's through things like the 45Q tax credit in the U.S. coupled with you know, the DOE DAC hubs or the investment tax credit here in Canada, you need a way of helping to underwrite the demand and the volatility of any nascent market. And then you need capital that's willing to invest in first-of-a-kind projects. It's something that the U.S. has done a fantastic job of with their DAC hubs program. It's something that I would love to see Canada do. And those three pieces are really, really critical. And then there are the other pieces that we need as well, uh, that, you know, maybe this is a multi-legged stool instead of just a three-legged stool. We need build out of renewable electricity infrastructure. The great thing about DAC is that we can deploy DAC in places that might be fantastic for renewables electricity generation that might not be similarly coupled with demand for those renewables so we can bring the demand to where the supply is, that can help to alleviate some of the pressure on the need for build out of transmission infrastructure. We need sequestration infrastructure. One of the reasons why we partnered with the team at Oxium 1.5 when we were first looking at how we commercialize our technology at climate relevant scale is that our expertise is in how you pull the carbon out of the air and concentrate it. We needed a partner who brought with them the expertise in how you take that CO2 and put it back underground where it came from safely and securely and in a way that ensures that we've got all of the monitoring and reporting and verification that we need to make sure that it actually stays where we think it's going. And for us, partnering with 1.5 and the team at Oxy has been a, a great choice on that front. You know, they've been putting CO2 underground for longer than I've been alive. Today, they put 20 million tons of CO2 underneath the ground every single year, and they make sure they stay there. So there really isn't anybody in the world with more expertise in how we do that safely than they have. And that allows us to then come together and say, 
what are the other pieces that we need? We need methodologies that, again, set that minimum bar for quality, that ensure that this is going to be done safely, and that even when the technology that we don't know what we don't know gets invented in however many years from now, that there's a performance-based standard that says, this is what good looks like. Good looks like cradle-to-grave life cycle analysis that takes into account all of your emissions from start to finish and ensures that when you say you're selling a net ton of carbon removal, that you're actually selling a net ton of carbon removal. Um, it includes monitoring and reporting and verification plans. And these are things that, you know, we don't have to invent from scratch. There are existing frameworks in place, whether it's the federal EPA regulations in the U.S. that already tell us how we can do this or things we can borrow from other industries. You know, my pre prior lives in, in hydrogen and fuel cells, I spent a lot of time working on safety standards. And the compressed gas industry has been figuring out how you develop a standard that ensures that your concept is safe, that your design's safe, that you've tested it out, and that as you go into producing that, that you're still producing the same thing that you said you'd produce. And they've been doing it for over 100 years. Um, and we don't think about it. It's something that we take for granted. So I think it's really important as we develop the infrastructure that we need to scale the carbon removal industry that we take the time to stop and look at precedents that exist in other places that we can borrow from and, and that we can use. We, we don't have to start everything from a blank page. That's really important, especially as we think about the need to move quickly on, on a lot of these pieces is where do we... Where do we not reinvent the wheel and 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 pull and adapt from things that have been done elsewhere or in different industries where there are some commonalities? Um, you touched on your partnership with Oxy briefly. I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss this point entirely. And I know there's still a lot getting figured out and there's limits to kind of what you can really talk about. But I'm just curious to know how the recent Oxy transaction impacts your plans relating to, you know, some of the things we talked about today in relation to the aviation sector. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And as I said, you know, Oxy has been a vital partner of Carbon Engineering's for several years in helping us to commercialize our technology. This is really an important step for our company. It builds on how CE and Oxy have worked closely together for the past five years to address the CO2 problem. As a Canadian it's really great to see that Carbon Engineering and our team of R&D innovators and the IP that we've developed so far is all going to remain at our innovation center in Squamish, British Columbia, Canada. You know, our BD teams are going to continue to remain in place and, and benefit from a greater platform to engage customers and partners around the world. At the core of this, and I think what gives it that that potential to be really successful is that deeper relationship and a commitment to invest in the continued development of our technology in Canada. It's something that's really important to me personally. It's something that's important to our company and something that we've seen demonstrated by our partners. Um, at the moment, we expect the transaction to close by the end of the year. We expect it will improve our global reach to accelerate implementation of 
DAC-based climate solutions, including for hard to abate sectors like aviation. That's great to hear, and we'll, we'll be watching developments on that front closely. Anna, is there anything else that we should know about carbon engineering's thinking on aviation? And uh, I'm curious to know how, how folks can learn more about your, your plans and your vision for the aviation sector going forward. Direct air capture is an incredibly powerful tool that we can use to help hard to abate sectors like the aviation sector to reach net zero. It provides us with the opportunity not only to address residual emissions through durable carbon removal, it can also be a critical feedstock for production of sustainable aviation fuel in the future. For anyone interested in learning more, I'd encourage them to visit the Carbon Engineering website, which is www.carbonengineering.com. Please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And you can also check out our partner's website at 1.5.com. Wonderful. Thanks so much for everything you're doing and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Naeem. It was an absolute pleasure. 